The following program has language that might be offensive, depending on your definition of might and offensive and your understanding of the language. It's Monday, March 14th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Some people think a tough question is one where there are no good answers. I don't. I think it's one that reveals good answers or one where the lack of a good answer is revealing. That is different from no good answer. Here now is a question with no good answers, but also it's not a good question. President Biden, your, your White House has said that, that Russia may use chemical weapons or create a false flag operation to use them. What evidence have you seen showing that? And would the U.S. have a military response if Putin does launch a chemical weapons attack? Now, you're not the president. We can assume you're not the president. All right. You don't know what the intel is. But you do know, as just a sensible person who doesn't want a nuclear war, that you're not going to be answering that question if you were the president. And thank God Joe Biden, in fact, did not answer that question. I'm not going to speak about the intelligence, but, but uh, Russia would pay a severe price to use chemicals. I'm not going to speak about intelligence, but you know what? I will vow to engage in a shooting war between nuclear adversaries. Glad you asked. Come on. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan made his rounds of the Sunday shows. The press was not content to leave it to just one reporter to ask a question that had to obviously and mandatorily be dodged. So Chuck Todd put this to Sullivan. The president used the phrase severe price uh, in reaction to what, you know, what would what would happen if Russia did this? He said they'd pay a severe price. I assume these economic sanctions are a severe price. Can you define what that phrase means? No, of course he can't, nor should he. Biden left it vague. An underling's going to commit us to a specific military action. And so he didn't. Here's what Jake Sullivan said. I'm not going to, in public, lay out the specifics of the severe consequences that Russia would face. Of course not. But Margaret Brennan of CBS just had to ask. And Jake Sullivan just had to answer. Sitting here before you today, I'm not going to go further than what President Biden said on Friday, which is that the Russians would pay a severe price if they were to uh, move forward with chemical weapons. And here it was on CNN State of the Union saying the same thing. As the president said on Friday, if Russia were to use chemical weapons in Ukraine, they would pay a severe price. And I'm going to leave it at that today. You know, that last one wasn't even prompted by a question. By that time, Sullivan might have just gotten into the groove of issuing this kind of threat that showed seriousness, but necessarily a vague seriousness. Communicating U.S. commitments and pressure points, it's a good use of public diplomacy. That's all fine. But if you pull back a bit and really think about what's being committed and what's being communicated just outside the very serious you don't want to go any further than that. You don't want to pull back. You don't want to go forward. You don't even want to go sideways. So when you have a box, it's not a great place to be in rhetorically. Just as Russia would be wise not to deploy chemical weapons, so too is the U.S. wise not to want to get boxed in by a barrel bomb. So talking about it so much is probably not good policy. And asking about it is not good questioning. The media should know this and should not want to press American officials further than what they're saying right now. In this case, it might be that the tough question is one that doesn't put the top official from a nuclear state on the defensive. 
On the show today, an inflationary spiel. Like the economy itself, you may start off with a low rate of interest, but like the price of consumer goods, your dander might just rise. But first, I try to speak truth, but this is a podcast and you hear it through your ears. As such, it is quite different from our usual way of communication, which isn't just about words, but about things like gestures and posture and body language. How to do this in audio format? Well, show and tell a little bit. So lean forward, steeple your fingers, and sit straight up, leaving two to three inches more than usual between your earlobes and your shoulders. All lessons from Vanessa Van Edwards, a behavioral investigator, a body language guru, and the author of Cues, Master the Secret Language of Charismatic Communication. Vanessa Van Edwards, up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Vanessa Van Edwards is, well, you know, her bio talks about her being a speaker, a researcher, and national best-selling author. She's done a lot of TED Talks. The Science of People is her company, and that company has a lab, and she actually studies just that, the science of people, how we come across to others, ways that we could speak, hold ourselves, and gesture so that we, in fact, present the best image or the image that we want to present. Her new book is called Cues, Master the Secret Language of Charismatic Communication. Charismatic is underlined, but it's not like a straight scientific underlined. It looks like it was underlined in pencil. And then on the cover of the book, Vanessa is sitting there in a way that is extremely intentional. We'll talk about all of that. Hi, Vanessa. Thanks for coming on The Gist. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for noticing all my cover cues. I hid some. Yes. I hid some in there. 
Well, the the confidence of the arms and the engagement of the feet, but you know, you ha- you did a little what you call in the book steepling, and this is the finger motion that touching fingertips to fingertips. And I have a few questions. I've actually written on steepling, only I called it finger tenting. And my analysis of finger tenting is a little different from yours in that in my analysis, which was done in 2014, uh, it was based on, do you remember the Muppet movie that came out around then? (laughs) You know, that isn't uh, at the top of my mind, but tell me about it. It's not the science. Tell me about it. Well, that's not part of the science lab. Um, So there there was an evil Kermit introduced. And to, yes, and to differentiate between good Kermit and evil Kermit, they had evil Kermit tent his fingers a lot. And the other big finger tenter in uh, the media was Montgomery Burns from The Simpsons. So tell me, though, why does steepling, given all that, and I've talked so much, given all that, why is steepling a virtue, whereas, as I looked at it, finger tenting was a vice? Okay, so let's so let's break it down. So the steeple or finger tenting is when you lightly touch your fingers together, right? I call this the power pose for the hand. And I have the biological reasons for this because so the, our fists evolved to be defensive, right? So when we make a fist, um, it's protecting our hand. It's our most dangerous part of uh, how we engage with people. Um, it shows uh, closed, it shows tension, it can show anger. Well, when we are relaxed, when we're not tense, we're not angry, we're not hiding anything or concealing, we show our palms, right? So we know a wave, a greeting, uh, going in for a handshake, someone has an open palm. So if someone's sitting in the opposite of a fist, they are showing their palms. They're literally saying, I'm showing you my hand. I'm not hiding anything. I'm so relaxed. I'm so confident and competent in myself and you that I can just have my, my hands completely at rest. Now, there is a difference. And I agree with you here. Drumming the fingers is a little evil fingery. Okay. Right. Like that's like a very, that's like total evil finger. So uh, having a still nice, calm steeple, calm, competent, but drumming, drumming is when we get into evil fingers. And this actually is a nice rule to keep in mind. Movement, unnecessary movement is something that humans don't like. We don't like wasted energy. In fact, highly common people are typically more still. So a calm steeple, same with any kind of gesture, even head movement. If it's purposeful, we like it. If it's um, uh, distracted movement, like drumming or cracking or rubbing, we don't like it. Yeah. And so much of this goes back to our animalistic instincts and any gestures or movement could connote a threat, right? Whereas if you're standing still, the audience is much less likely to be on guard. Exactly. And that, I think that's what we're trying to transmit here is how do I transmit signals that you can trust me? I'm not a threat, but also that you can rely on me. And that's the, the, the next step, right? Is two questions we are always asking about the people we're interacting with. This is an email. This is in video. This is on phone. This is in person is one. Can I trust you? Are you a threat? Can I be safe with you? And second, can I rely on you? Are you smart? Are you going to give me good information? And so the faster we can answer those questions for people immediately with their cues, the more someone can relax and be like, ah, this is my person. That I think is the definition of charisma. But I don't think that it's not about transmitting that you're a threat, but if you 
if people are totally relaxed, sometimes they don't pay enough attention and sometimes they take you for granted. So you want to both transmit and you get into this. Uh, you don't want to, you don't want to uh, communicate that you're a threat, but you do want to communicate that maybe you have some edge or maybe the unexpected could occur, or maybe this is not someone to just gloss over and not notice. Okay. So you just picked up on the biggest myth that I think professionals have, which is, ah, to be powerful and competent, to be taken seriously, I should under emote. I should be stoic and still and cold, and I shouldn't give away my cards. The problem is, is if we under emote, if we don't show enough signals, we don't show enough cues, people cannot get a, like they can't grip into us. It's like, we don't have enough stickiness. And so right. you're absolutely right. Your humanity is not being transmitted. Ex exactly. Enough, right? We're humans, we're human animals. And if we see that stoic blank person, what are we, are we really dealing with? A yeah. Person? And so we need, <laughs> I think that what I want to encourage people is like, actually the right expressiveness is super captivating, right? Like the right cues hook people in and bring people in. And that's actually a much better way to interact because we're not muting. Muting is in itself a cue, right? When we studied poker players, so poker players had all kinds of interesting cues. Muting is the biggest cue that gives away a poker player because muting is in itself a cue. When a poker player is trying to hide either a good hand or a bad hand, they under signal. So we even know as humans, uh-oh, what are they trying to hide? That's what under-signaling tends to cue us to think. So as far as uh, a genuine uh, subconscious or unconscious gesture versus uh, one that you chose, I saw you on CBS this morning and you must have been so grateful <laughs> because they gave you a big segment and all three hosts liked you and they even did a display of your book cover. I know. And then when they come to you, you either said thank you, I can't remember the words, maybe I'll get the clip, but you definitely did the prayer hands. Did I you know did. that? I did. <laughs> I, you know, it's so funny. First of all, I was so grateful. I get, I get just a little behind the scenes. I'm so nervous, right? Like I'm so nervous. I do a lot of podcasts. I do my own YouTube videos in my studio, right? With my crew and my camera. So I don't do live TV very often, like literally once every five years. And so I am nervous. I am very nervous. I have no idea where it's going to go. I get there. I'm in the makeup chair and I hear Gail King. I hear her coming down the hallway and the makeup, the makeup ladies go, she's coming. She's coming. She's coming. And I'm like, she's coming. She's coming. She's like, <laughs> I'm like, play cool, play cool, play cool. And she comes in and she's holding my book and she has, I'm not joking, a hundred post-it notes in the book. She has underlined, she has pages of notes. And I was, I wanted to cry. I was so honored. I'm just, Gail King could be, she and Oprah could be on the Mount Rushmore of yeah. excellent nonverbal cues. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And so I wanted to cry, okay? Right. And she's and she, so kind. She's talking to me. She's saying, I want to talk about this cue and I want to talk about this cue. And I'm just so grateful. And it was like entering a cloud. I mean, literally, mm -hmm. like I, I'm following her into the set and I'm like, la, 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 la. <laughs> like, you know, I'm just like, and then Nate and Tony are like, we love the book. And I'm, I literally was sitting there like that. I did not do that prayer gesture on purpose. In fact, mm -hmm. I noticed I was doing it and I was like, this is sort of silly. Maybe I shouldn't <laughs> do this because I was like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It was like the, and it was authentic. I hope it was, I hope people liked it. You know, I don't know. I wonder if, or I don't know if you know about this, if non-Christians or specifically non-Christian societies, so it's not permeating, if the prayer gesture registers mm. to them like it does to us. 
Ooh, that's a really good question. I wonder if there's research on that specific gesture. Although if you just do it, like, so if you just like hold your palms together, it is pretty grounding, right? Mm -hmm. Like it it is a pretty grounding gesture. Um, It literally makes you focus because I think you can't do anything with your hands when you're doing that. So I wonder if you could do research. That would be an interesting thing to look at is if there's a difference between Christian and non-Christian or religions that use the prayer gesture and religions that don't, if they have different significant, they have different meanings. or at least it's uh, pretty meditative. Right, And exactly. I also wonder if when you, you know, if I type thank you or key it into my phone, it gives me the prayer gesture. So I wonder if that is reinforcing it in society. Okay, I mean, I think emojis are changing visual cues. A hundred percent. So the prayer gesture is doubling up right on. So if I say, if I, yeah, if I type thank you or gratitude into my phone, it now shows me the prayer gesture, which I use a lot in emo- as an emoji. Also, I think like, for example, um, there's an emoji that drives me nuts. It's like my, it's like, I just, I just like want to get rid of it. I just like wish it was deleted from the emoji dictionary. It just drives me crazy, which is uh, the one-sided mouth raise emoji. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Th- this emoji is the universal signal for contempt. So it's, it's like that one-sided mouth rage, but people use it as like all good, no problem. When you tell, what, how does that come up? What word does that trigger? I wonder if it's like triggered is the wrong word. We both pull out our phones. We're like phones. We're like, I I avoid it. I avoid it at all costs. Maybe like fine or. Oh, maybe fine. Yeah. Oh, actually, if you search smirk. Yeah. Yeah. Smirk. Smirk. That's it. Ugh. Ugh. Huh. So this this cue yeah. is 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 confusing people, especially my Gen Zers. Now I'm a millennial, so um we're also confused. Don't get me wrong. But um <laughs> But you're a geriatric but, millennial, as they call them. I am hey, <laughs> hey. But I am a geriatric I had to Google, by the way, someone someone <laughs> texted me LFG today yeah. and I was like, Google. I was like, yes, LFG. <laughs> what is but it? I'm, uh, it's it's let's go oh okay i, can, you can I didn't say, say it for the kids yeah, you know yeah. but you i, I yes. okay well i didn't know I, i'm the googling yes. i am googling <laughs> acronyms a lot yes. so i am definitely a geriatric millennial <laughs> so i think that um that emoji is confusing people because it's sort of it's not it's not put in a negative category. And so it's like, oh, this is like, yeah, I'm kind of happy. Like that's all good. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to, our visual cues are going to be changing a lot, a lot. Mm -hmm. And by the way, for people who use a lot of emojis um, and exclamation points, that's highly warm. So um, don't overuse emojis because they do take away from your competence. I know. So you talk, it's smirk. It's the smirk emoji. I came up with a definition of smirk around the time of that Covington Catholic story when they said the kid was smirking. The definition of smirk is when someone you don't like smiles. That's all it is. No. (laughs) I think so. (gasps) I think you can't do, if you tried to do a smirk and I was agreeing with you or I like you or you seem cool to me, I would think it was... App, not a smirk, but if someone who had a quote unquote punchable face, I don't know, let's say take a, a bow tied uh, Fox News anchor. If okay. he were to <laughs> throw out a smile, we might all, in, or you and I might interpret it as a smirk when in fact Tucker's just smiling. Okay. Okay. So um, do you remember this? And this was a bit, this was the smirk heard around the world. There was a time when George W. Bush was running for president and he was smirking all the time and it, it really bothered people, but it didn't just bother Democrats. It also bothered the Republicans so much. So the Republican party was like, he has to stop. 
<laughs> he must stop smirking. There was like news stories about it. Yeah. And I think he got communication training to like de-smirk him. I mean, he might have even gotten Botox on that side of his face. I don't know, but he, he trained himself out of the smirk. So um, it, it's, uh, I really, if you have it in your profile picture, I would, I would kindly ask that you consider changing it because I think that it can rub people wrong. It can rub people wrong. Yes. Vanessa Van Edwards is the author of Cues, Small Signals, Incredible Impact. She's the best-selling author of Captivate. She doesn't just she doesn't just gesture wildly all around. She quantifies it. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And now the spiel. In explaining inflation, Joe Biden has cast the blame on the scourge of the supply chain, A, and then on a scurrilous villain, B. The villain is not an abstract-seeming series of monetary decisions or the interconnected international system of how we get goods and services to the market. It is a real-life, worst guy in the world, you already hate him, James Bond villain, villain. The second big reason for inflation is Vladimir Putin. Nancy Pelosi acknowledged that inflation has many causes, but also agreed that a strong factor was, again, that villain on the Volga, Vladimir Putin. Putin's tax, that's, a, a, that's really Putin's gas hike. That's his gas hike. This, so much of this uh, increase in the gas tax, uh, gas uh, price started uh, uh, weeks leading up to what happened there. It is true that as spokespeople or explainers of policy, the top Democrats lack for a candied tongue Cicero. They're stuck with a Speaker of the House and a president whose combined ages are 160. However, whatever Pelosi and Biden are lacking in oratorical abilities at this stage of their careers, they're also hampered by an inconvenient fact. Their message is misleading, inaccurate, incomplete. Let's take Pelosi's claim that inflation has nothing to do with spending. 17 Nobel laureates in economics said that that legislation does not increase inflation. It is non-inflationary because of the way it is written. So when we're having this discussion, it's important to dispel some of those who say, well, it's the government spending. No, it isn't. Yes, it is, says Mitch McConnell who is one year, 330 days younger than Nancy Pelosi and the Senate Minority Leader. At this time last year, Washington Democrats were beginning their quest to dump trillions of dollars in left-wing spending on a recovering economy that already had the preconditions for some inflation. Everybody warned Democrats to pump the brakes. Just weeks earlier, Republicans had already supported a smaller, targeted bipartisan stimulus that had barely started take effect. Even top liberal economists warned Democrats' agenda could spark massive inflation. The consequences for working families have been particularly harsh. Well, who's right? They all are. Mm-t. There is no cause for inflation. There are many causes. Yes, absolutely. The supply chain disruptions have caused 
some of the inflation we're seeing. But please note that as the supply chain gets repaired, inflation keeps going up. That's odd. Well, not really. If you're not a binary thinker, supply chain is a cause. The war, Putin, absolutely driving prices higher, especially energy prices. So that's a cause. But remember one month ago, before the war, inflation, very high. Almost record-setting levels. Now it's record-setting levels. And of course, monetary policy, interest rates, quantitative easing, giant cause of inflation. But, sorry Speaker Pelosi, government spending has caused some inflation. A significant amount, I'd say. A couple to a few of these percentage points of inflation that are causing percentage points of pain. When Nancy Pelosi says the 14 Nobel-winning economists certified the bill as non-inflationary, great, okay, maybe they're right, but you know what? It doesn't matter because that bill never passed. The spending that was passed was the stimulus, and top economists said it would cause inflation, and it did, in fact, cause inflation in the exact manner that was predicted. Because of this fact, I say take Mitch McConnell's assessment which you just heard, perhaps help him out a little bit, perhaps more than he deserves, by thinking about his incendiary phrases. To dump trillions of dollars in left-wing spending. And put them through the unbiased Nader 2000. And think instead of left-wingers and piling on dumping this money and bleeding hard causes, think he said something like Democrats, guided by their sincere belief in uplifting the immiserated, Dot, dot, dot. Also, try not to hoist them on the petard of past endorsements of Trump tax cuts, really every tax cut, of always paying for itself and always boosting the economy, so it doesn't have great credibility on that. And also, if you want to help them along by pulling them back from the broad brushstrokes of the politician that always paint everything as the other party's fault entirely. All right, you do all that. I do think a more fairly presented, contextualized version of what McConnell said is the correct thesis. The Democratic aid package was so big, it significantly contributed to inflation. That's true. I base my opinion on those who don't have a political axe to grind and who, if anything, wish it weren't true, but can't pretend otherwise. Here's Jason Furman, chair of Barack Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, current professor of economics at Harvard. Here he is talking on Josh Barrow's very serious podcast. There's two propositions I'm certain are false, and frankly, I'm embarrassed for the people who advance these propositions. <laughs> One is that spending the amount of money we did created lots of jobs, added a lot to growth, and had zero effect on inflation. And the other proposition that you hear on a different set of television channels is the exact opposite of that, that spending all this money got us lots of inflation and had nothing to do uh, with jobs or economic growth. The truth is somewhere in between those two. I don't know for sure what the answer is. I have a pretty strong suspicion that, say, the last $500 billion we spent, we got a lot of inflation and not a lot of jobs. And so the cost benefit on that was bad. So yeah, I think it's just what was your cost benefit for each dollar? Well, it got worse. The cost for inflation got worse as you added money. And you were just getting yourself up against a constraint. There's only so many people that wanted to work. There's only so fast you can expand output. So as you added more and more money, you basically got fewer and fewer jobs for each dollar you added and more and more inflation for each dollar that you added. And that's how to look at it, I think. Much of the stimulus spending was good, necessary, and job-saving. And then it got to be overkill and not necessary to fighting unemployment. Less a safety net, more a snare. 
Furthermore, I believe Nancy Pelosi knows this to be true. We, we don't want to give up jobs in order, you know, we, we want lower unemployment. Some, there will be some inflation that comes with that, but we don't want it. It can't be excessive. Biden, and especially Pelosi, as evidenced by her broaching the subject there, accurately assess that inflation is a trade-off of the spending that kept us out of recession and the spending that got us to lower unemployment and spending that caused inflation. Politics today, defending yourself from your flanks at all times and knowing that modern media refuses to be nuanced, does not think it's wise to emphasize that every policy has trade-offs. It's all good guys versus bad guys, good intentions versus bad intentions, the smart versus the dumb, the caring versus the heartless. Sometimes that's true. A lot of times it isn't. And I think in this case, it isn't. And Biden and Pelosi just can't bring themselves to, or maybe just simply can't say so. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the Just Assistant Producer. Joel Patterson is the Just Senior Producer. Michelle Pesca is Peachfish Productions Gesture Coordinator and Director of Steepling. The Just is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. Want to advertise? Check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu depru duperu, and thanks for listening.